Hi, I'm Angela East and welcome to another edition of the East Meets West podcast. This podcast is proudly focused on Western Australia, the engine room of the Australian economy. From the CEOs, company directors, brokers, entrepreneurs and everyone in between, East Meets West is a deep dive into what makes the greatest state on earth tick. On this episode of the East Meets West podcast, I'm chatting with Rick Rule, a well-known mining investor and the president and CEO of Rule Investment Media and retired CEO of Sprott US Holdings, one of the world's largest investors in natural resources. Rick has carved out an impressive and successful career investing in resources over five decades, having initiated and participated in hundreds of debt and equity transactions with private, pre-public and public companies. He joins me this week to discuss his investment philosophy, what's hot in the resources market in 2024, and which ASX-listed companies he has added to his watch list. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Angela. It's a pleasure. So you're a well-known and highly regarded name in mining investment and have been very successful over your extensive 50-year career. Why did you decide to dedicate your life to investing in natural resources? I guess I sort of came of age in the decade of the 60s. Natural resources had been an underinvested theme in the United States for about 20 years. I had a sense as a teenager that that would change, but I was also attracted to the lifestyle. I liked being outdoors. Uh, and as a consequence, I entered a profession that's kept me trapped in an office for 50 years. <laughs> Tell us a bit about your investment philosophy and how you choose which stocks to back. Well, that's certainly changed. Early in my career in natural resources, uh, I, I had the good fortune to run headlong into the decade of the 70s, which was the most e- extraordinary period of natural resource investing probably in recorded history. Uh, and as a young man, I made a lot of money, which being a young man, I attributed to my own genius, neglecting the fact that uh, the oil price ran from $35 to $850, the gold price ran from $3 to $30, whatever. Uh, I didn't understand at that period of time that markets worked, that the cure for high prices was high prices and the cure for low prices was low prices. The upshot of that is that when the boom of the 70s ended and the bust of the 80s came in, uh, I went from being a very wealthy young man to having a negative net worth, which is to say a net worth sub-zero. It was then that I learned the bitter truth about markets in capital-intensive cyclical businesses, which is to say truly that the cure for low prices is low prices and the cure for high prices is high prices. And further, uh, and this has been my slogan now for 40 of my 50 years in investing, if you are not a contrarian, you will become a victim. So when people come to me and they say, what's hot, what's popular, uh, I, I, I tell them honestly that I try to avoid that, uh, that I look for circumstances where the industry is deeply out of favor and preferably, frankly, in liquidation. Specifically, I look for industries where the global cost of production, fully loaded, including tax and cost of capital, exceeds the selling price of the product. Because in those circumstances, either the price of the product rises or humankind must do without the benefit of that product. Look back at 2021. The oil price was at, uh, what, well, briefly at zero, but $20 US a barrel when the industry average cost of production, fully loaded, was at $60 a barrel. The equation was this, would the oil price go up or would the world's cars not start? So that's really uh, the idea that I invest in simple themes 
that are contrarian, that are supported by arithmetic is what has worked for me. We can get into the weeds, into other investment metrics, if you like, later in the interview. But the overall theme is simply that in capital-intensive cyclical businesses, you are either a contrarian or you are going to become a victim. What are some of the most successful stocks you have invested in? Well, given that you're from WA, you'll like this. Uh, In 1999, I was convinced that the uranium price had to go up. And I attended what was loosely then called an investment conference, uh, Diggers and Dealers in Kalgoorlie. Uh, It was actually a a mass drunk in those days. But I managed to carve out enough sober moments to meet a little uranium explorer at Diggers and Dealers called Paladin Resources. It had absolutely no love, which attracted me, and it was uh, purporting to be in uranium, which attracted me too. Still, it had a market cap of a million eight Australian. And I remember saying to the CEO, John Borshoff, who remains a friend today, John, how do you believe that you can explore when you have a market cap of only a million eight Australian? And I'll never forget in a million years, he said, Rick, I don't have to explore. I said, how's that? He said, I was an exploration manager for uh, big West German uranium exploration concerns. And they gave me, as my termination payment, their worldwide database that had the data that was the result of a, of a billion dollars of exploration that I did for them. So I don't have to explore. I have to stake. That was the best answer I ever heard in my life. Uh, and in fact, we financed Paladin, $2 million financing in a million eight market cap. In other words, really a recap. And there was a lot of lessons, Angela. I was early. So we financed them at a dime and the stock went to nine, eight. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, bottomed at one. If you've bought something for a dime and it's selling at a penny, you don't have a hold. You have a buy or you have a sell. I mercifully revisited my thesis and decided that while I was early, I was not wrong, I was right. While I didn't buy any at a penny, I bought some at a penny and a half. And six years later, this is going to sound like fiction, but I swear it's gospel. Six years later, the stock was $10 bid. So you could say either that I held the stock from 10 cents to $10, or you could say more accurately that I held it from 10 cents to one cent to $10. The lessons are the same. Uh, It was a contrarian move. I was early. I had persistence because it took me six years of hold to recognize that gain. And I had tenacity because I endured a 90% loss on the way to that <laughs> almost fathomless gain. The biggest invest, the biggest success of my career, in fact, came out of WA. Wow, that's really interesting to know. That's good. So just on the uranium front then, this, um, just curious about what your thoughts are on the Western Australian uranium space, given that there's only four projects permitted to go ahead uh, and the, the WA government's stance on on uranium then is that they're not approving any, any more projects. So um, what are your thoughts around that? Let's enlarge the discussion initially to uranium generally. When it was at $20 a pound, nobody wanted to buy it. Now that it's $100 a pound, it seems fashionable again, uh, which is odd. I think the easy money has been made in uranium. Uh, I think for reasons that would take us 20 minutes to parse out, that the big money is ahead. But I think you'll need to be patient through, through 2024. With specific regards to the question... Uh, I think Australia generally, but WA is a pretty good place to look for uranium. Uh, I think also that uh, Perth has the right conjunction 
of capital providers and uh, technical expertise to do well in the uranium business. I note that Western Australian politicians and Australian politicians and American politicians all share one common trait, which is lunacy. The regulatory regime in Australia with regards to nuclear power and the three mines policy, <laughs> uh, I struggle to be polite. Uh, let's just say it's ill-advised. So when it comes to your portfolio then, are you a, a big investor in energy stocks, traditional and clean energy commodities? Very big investor in traditional energy stocks. I grew up in the oil and gas business, and that business is laughably cheap right now. It is laughably cheap because of narrative. The largest period in human history, recorded history uh, in demand for oil and gas products, contrary to uh, President Biden and his ilk, is right now. The big thinkers of the world would have you think that we will replace carbon generating fuels, uh, according to their most recent guess in 2032, more like 2065 or 2070. Let me give you a statistic. We, meaning humankind, has invested now five trillion US dollars in 40 years in alternative energy generation. By the way, I'm not opposed to alternative energies. I just want to give you the arithmetic. And that $5 trillion expenditure has, re has reduced the market share of fossil fuels from a high of 82% all the way down to 81%. So a $5 trillion investment has reduced the market share of fossil fuels by 1%. The truth is that despite the wishes of the big thinkers, fossil fuel demand, including oil and gas demand, will be with us for a very long time. And the price doesn't have to go up. It's extraordinarily profitable at these levels. Despite the industry's profitability, the big thinkers of the world discourage investment in conventional energy, and many institutional investors, uh, paying attention to rhetoric and narrative uh, rather than to the interests of their clients, are disinvesting from oil and gas companies. One consequence of that is that the oil and gas industry worldwide is underinvesting in sustaining capital by about a billion US dollars a day, which is to say 365 billion US dollars a year. What that means in the out years, say 25, 26, 27, is decreases in production because without sustaining capital investments, you can't maintain your production, as has been evidenced by the Venezuelan national oil company, PDVSA, and the Mexican national oil company, PMEX. So politics aside, uh, the easiest place for investors rather than speculators to make money in the resource space, from my point of view, is in conventional energy. In your view, where is the resources sector sitting in the cycle currently? Uh, I don't think there is a cycle. I think there are many cycles. So let's get that one out of the way. I, I think that in terms of materials like in particular copper, but also oil, that systemic underinvestment uh, and continued growth and demand will lead inevitably to supply shortages in the five to six year time frame. And I think investors in those spaces will find themselves rewarded more richly than they think they're going to be rewarded in. I think there's a couple of surprises out there. I, I note that in Australia, conventional sulfide nickel projects are being shut down very quickly. Nickel prices have declined by half. If you look at the root causes of the uh, nickel price collapse, I would suggest that there are three. First of all, the price ran up too much three years ago. 
as people suddenly discovered that the lithium ion battery had a lot of nickel in it. One thing that happened is that prices fell from a higher level. Two other important things happened. Uh, the first was the expansion of the laterite nickel industry in the Philippines and in particular Indonesia. And my suspicion is that production growth in Indonesia will begin to decline now, particularly given the extraordinary environmental impact of the surface mining of those laterites in tropical coastal condition. I just flew over the nickel mines in southern Sulawesi a month ago, and I need to say that uh, 50 years uh, of looking at sometimes not very pretty mining sites uh, still left me unprepared for the devastation that I saw in southern Sulawesi, which I don't think that the Indonesian citizenry will put up with for too, mu too much longer. The other thing that's weighed on the nickel business has been the liquidation of surplus Russian stocks. It seems for some reason that over the last 12 months, the Russians have needed to raise some money for some purpose. Uh, mu much like 1990 and 1991, the last time the Russians were short of cash, the Russians have been dishoarding anything that they have in inventory that has a bid. That includes both nickel and, of course, platinum and palladium. If past this prologue, uh, when the Russians run out of inventory and the selling ceases, the prices will rebound. So while I don't suspect that uh, 2024 will be a, a gentle year for investors in nickel, I suspect that midway through 2025 and 2026 will be very good years. Uh, and I suspect that going into those very good years, uh, investors will hate nickel because of the performance that it's exib exhibited recently. Uh, not to tell people necessarily to buy nickel, but rather to use nickel as an illustration of the question that you asked me. It's already been an eventful 2024 in commodities like lithium and uranium, for example. Which sectors do you see being standouts this year? I don't think that we're going to see any rice, rapid price escalations in resources. People point out that lithium has fallen by half after it went up by 500%. <laughs> I would remind my Australian friends that we were never short of lithium as a material. We were short of processing capacity to turn out lithium-based chemicals. The industry has worked like mad to ease those processing shortages over five years, and lo and behold, they've accomplished that. Now, uh, a supply of uh, both rock and brine lithium comes on the market without adequate processing facilities. So I think the pricing continues to be challenged. I believe certainly that the nickel price will recover, but not for two years. I believe that the platinum and palladium prices will recover. I think perhaps the commodity that will surprise people in 2024 will be gold. When people ask me when the gold price will move, I always say, well, <laughs> 23 years ago, gold has moved by 8% compounded for 23 straight years. It's done exactly the job that it was supposed to do. It did that, however, against pretty rough competition, which is to say the US dollar, which did extraordinarily well. My sad suspicion, being an American, is that US dollar hegemony will be less complete in the future than it has been in the past. I think the fiscal sins of the US government and US society uh, and the attempted export uh, of American politics and values around the world mean that the U.S. dollar will be less prominent as a medium of exchange uh, and that U.S. dollar-denominated savings instruments uh, will become less valuable. And I think that gold will, as a consequence, 
become more valuable. I'm not particularly interested myself, Angela, because I'm not a trader, in the move in gold from $2,200 to $2,500 or $2,275, some number like that. Uh, I'm looking more like a move uh, that occurred in the first part of the decade of the 2000s. Uh, I'm. I don't own gold because I hope it'll go to twenty five hundred. I own gold because I'm afraid it'll go to eight thousand. And I own gold stocks partly for the same reason. If you examine the equity prices of, say, the major equity gold equity indexes around the world, the XAU and things like that, what I think you discover statistically is that the gold equities are the least expensive that they have been relative to the price of gold for at least 40 years. And if you expect gold to outperform, which I do, and if you expect the industry not to repeat the sins it exhibited in the decade 2000 to 2010, which I sort of do, uh, I think investors uh, need to consider the gold equities and speculators really need to look at the gold juniors, which are really, really, really out of favor. And I'm doing exactly that. I'm increasing my weighting in my own portfolio to gold. And for the first time in 12 years, really weighting aggressively back into the exploration space, simply because it's so roundly hated. Okay. So which ASX listed stocks are you watching closely? And are you looking at any that have a WA focus? Am I looking at any of the... Well, I guess Bellevue sort of has a WA focus. So I'm... uh, reasonable size shareholder of, of that. Of course, I'm a large shareholder of John Borshoff's more recent uh, incarnation, which is Deep Yellow. Uh, I'm a large holder of a Perth-based company uh, looking for copper in Chile or finding copper in Chile, rather, which is to say uh, hot Chile. The rest of my large Australian positions, I'm trying to think through what they are. Centaurus, which is an Australian domiciled nickel, platinum, palladium discovery in Brazil. Uh, Sovereign Metals, uh, which is a rutile and graphite deposit in Malawi. Very, very, very large deposit. I'm attracted to large deposits. Meteoric, uh, which is an Australian domiciled uh, rare earths deposit in Brazil. I, I need to say by way of disclaimer that I'm much more deposit centric than I am commodity centric which is to say deposits that at least have a target size of $10 billion US in recoverable in situ reserve and resources that would be in the lowest cost quartile in their commodity worldwide and in the best return on capital employed, uh, but at least 25% quartile worldwide are things that attract me. So while I'm attracted to gold, what I see on evidence in Australia is that the deposits that seem cheap to me in the market are, in fact, uh, things like rutile, graphite, nickel, uh, and rare earths. In other words, I'm much more deposit-centric than I am commodity-centric. What are some of the economic and geopolitical drivers you see impacting the resources investment market this year? Well, sadly, they're all bad. The world, uh, I think, uh, is becoming less oriented towards integration, which is to say the good parts of globalization, freer trade, freer migration, appear to be over. There is an understandable 
uh, tendency in societies like China and India and the Middle East to uh, achieve the same security, geopolitical security with regards to resource supplies <coughs> that the United States, Europe, and Japan uh, did in the 1960s. So there's increasing competition among geopolitical blocks for access to resources. Unfortunately, there's also a, a, a rising tendency around the world towards big government and statism. Uh, and what that means is that there's a rising tendency towards economic nationalism, not necessarily outright uh, nationalism of resources, but rather stealth nationalism, increasing tax, uh, increasing off mine site social rents, and in some cases, uh, outright nationalism. I, I look at Chile, which has been, from my point of view, the best destination for natural resource capital for 40 years. Uh, the consequence of that is that what it went from one of the poorest countries in South America to easily the, the richest country in South America, at least per capita. And the voters there have chosen to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory uh, by turning towards socialist statist solutions when pretty obviously private markets were what was responsible for the emergence of Chile to a middle income country. Uh, and that's something, unfortunately, that's occurring literally around the world. Lastly, the 2024 Rural Symposium on Natural Resource Investing is coming up in July. Tell us a bit about what investors might be able to expect at this event. I have put on now for 28 years a retail natural resources investment conference. Mercifully, for 25 of the 28 years, it's been well attended by Australians. That is the Boca Raton Natural Resources Investment Symposium in Boca Raton, Florida, July 7 to 11. I note that you don't have to leave Australia to attend it. While we would prefer to have you physically in attendance, we will live stream this event worldwide. 1,100 people uh, attended the event last year from the convenience and comfort of their own home. Unlike any other investment conference that I know of in the world, this conference has a gold-plated money-back guarantee. If you don't think that you have received education and information from the conference, that exceeds uh, the ticket price for the conference, either live or virtual, we will refund your money, no questions asked. We are confident that we can do that because we bring you some of the best macro speakers on the planet. Macro, not of the type that you would get from the ABC uh, or CNBC, uh, but rather the Jim Rickards and the Bill Bonners and the Doug Casey's of the world, people whose worldview has been sadly and startlingly accurate over the last 20 or 30 years. After we do that, we introduce you to uh, analysts and editors with 30 and 40 years uh, of constructing natural resource investment portfolios. Not, by the way, analysts who failed as tech te technology analysts, failed as crypto analysts, and failed as pot analysts, but rather people who have been in the resource and extractive industries for 30, year, for 30 years. We introduce you to what we call the living legends, entrepreneurs who have built multi-billion dollar natural resource companies from scratch, telling you how the lessons that they learned make them better investors, naming companies that are in their portfolio, and telling you how to become a better investor yourself. Suffice it to say, as a consequence of 28 years of success putting on this conference, we have the confidence to say to you, you will get your money's worth or we will give you your money back. 
That's great. Thank you so much for your time today, Rick. I really appreciate having you on the podcast. A pleasure. I hope your uh, listeners enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having the conversation with you. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs>